Good morning. Whew, okay, I am in uh, John 6, if you want to head there. Um, we're going to look at verse 25 to 43. We're moving through John. And I want to um, paint a little bit of a picture before we read the passage. And then what Jesus is um, talking about in this passage this morning. Um, like, I love this, but I'm going to turn that off. I probably messed up the live stream, so if I did, I'm sorry. Um, We're moving through John, so we're in John 6. We're going to pick up in verse um, 25. And I want you to think with me about something as we head this way, because what's just happened is Jesus has just fed um, the multitudes. So the Bible listed as 5,000 people, if you've been here. But what we talked about was that they were counting men. So with women and children, we're probably talking about 15,000 people. So he's, he's fed this enormous multitude. And what's, what's going on throughout this northern part of the Sea of Galilee is, is it's a renewal and a reviving of people. And all of a sudden where people have been hopeless because Rome has conquered this whole area and people are um, depressed, they feel downtrodden, they fear, feel persecuted by Rome. They're looking for um, the Messiah and all of a sudden everybody's talking. All of the, um, the little cities and the towns, everybody, there's like this rumor of the Messiah is here that's like rumbling through the countryside, right? And so everyone is, is walking away from work or family or whatever to go out and see this Jesus, this 30-year-old young guy and they're, they're leaving things to go out and encounter him, to watch him, to see what he's doing. And in some ways, um, this John 6 is like this high, beautiful moment um, in the Gospels because there's such energy behind what's happening, okay? I mean, like, like think with me, um, uh, 20,000 people, uh, the biggest place I know of in, in Wilmington in terms of a group gathering uh, is um, Trask Coliseum at UNCW. That seats 5,000. So that's like us meeting over at Trask Coliseum and having like four services. Like just think about that a second, okay? Think about that. Four services at Trask Coliseum. Okay, wow. Wow. When a person gets to that place in their ministry, so Jesus is 30 years old and he's got some 15 to 20,000 people coming around, circling around him, coming to hear what he says. What do you think happens inside his head and inside his heart? I'm something special. You think he ever felt that? You think he was tempted? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what we begin to see actually here is that Jesus makes a decisive shift in his ministry that is like, I don't know, in fact, I do know, if you injected Michael, even right now where I am, age 41, into the Sea of Galilee, and I had 20,000 people or 15,000 people coming out to hear me, could I do what Jesus did? Because at the end of this week, this is the passage we're going to do this week, and at the end of next week's passage, guess how many he's got left? 12. And really, one of the 12 is a traitor, so he's got 11. Good. We, we're all on the math page. Come on. 
Okay, so what Jesus does is he actually, um, he, he's built uh, not just a mega church, like a huge mammoth, like country church or something. You know, I don't know. It's like he's built this enormous thing. And then he does what is absolutely contrary to every leadership book and church growth manual and church planting manual. And he takes people down a path that is so like earth shattering, they can't handle it. And what's everybody do? In fact, let's just flip to the end. We're going to do this next week, not this week, but go to the end of chapter 6. And here's what it says. Chapter 6, verse 66 says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And what I want you to actually begin to see, there's a couple things I want you to see here, because Jesus is, um, he's shifting from ministering to the multitudes, ministering to the crowds, and now he's going to shift and he's going to begin to challenge um, and even invite the religious people to take, take steps into deep and significant relationship with him. But what he does is absolutely, it's like, I don't think any pastor anywhere could do it. I don't think they could handle it. Because the crowd is like heady. It's almost like heroin. Some of you are like, no way. Oh, yeah. Go, go talk to a fallen pastor. What happened? The crowd got him. And you, you see this thing in King Jesus that is so amazing because he's so ruthlessly committed to the higher kingdom of God, the, the higher um, purpose that he's here for. And even as a 30-year-old man, he's able to surrender his life and will in such a way that he faces the greatest temptations that I think uh, leaders and preachers and people of any level face. And he walks right through it and then the crowd is gone. I mean, he goes from 15, 20,000 people to nobody. It's amazing. But the other thing that I think you have to begin to see here is there's a tug of war that is beginning to happen um, between Jesus and the people. Okay? So the tug of war is, remember, the people are oppressed by who? Rome. Okay, so Rome, heavy rule on these people. They're oppressed. They have to pay all these taxes. They can't stand Rome. They're looking for a Messiah to save them. But what else are they looking for? a political rabble-rouser to set them free. So, so they're looking and they're starting to think that Jesus is going to save us, but they're really after what they want. And so you get this dichotomy that begins to happen. Is it gonna be the people's will or is it gonna be God's will? And so there's this tug of war that begins to sort of develop. And I would propose to you that the tug of war we're gonna see here is the same tug of war that you face and that I face every single day. Is it going to be his will or is it going to be my will? And I would actually propose to you that that timeless sort of tug of war, are you going to surrender to him or are you going to do it your way, is what happens inside of every single one of us. So <clears throat> the other thing that I would say here as we move into this passage is this is what gets Jesus killed. This is what gets Jesus killed. And so what happens is from this chapter six towards the end of the, all the way to the end of the book of John where he's actually killed is everyone begins to leave him all the way till he gets to the very end and he's at the very end and he has this last supper which we're actually gonna celebrate here in a few minutes and he has this last supper and then even those closest to him leave down to the very Simon Peter who denies him how many times? Three times. So by the end, Jesus is left all by himself. If you came in here lonely today, I want you to know something. Wherever you are, whatever loneliness, whatever difficulty you're facing, this is the God that absolutely knows. 
This is the Jesus that feels, that felt, that journeyed, and that he was willing to forsake all of the approval and the celebration of men and women and the crowds, and and they wanted to go make him king. They wanted to go make him king. I mean, they were going to drag him. It just said at the very end of, of, uh, I guess it was 6, look at chapter 6, verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, they were going to drag him. You know, we have to like run elections and try to get people to vote for us, right? So we can get into office. They were going to drag him to Jerusalem and make him king. Like he had to absolutely reject what they were doing and go, no, 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 no. Not your will, but God's will. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing if you actually get in to even psychologically what must have been going on inside Jesus' heart. So, Jesus shifts, let's open up, 625, that's what we're going to start reading today, and there's this shift that happens in verse 25, and I want to explain it to you quickly, but Jesus has gone from preaching in the open air, he's gone from preaching in the countryside, he's gone from like um, just thousands of people gathering around him, and he now moves into a little synagogue in a city called Capernaum, and you can actually go there today, I've been there, it's an amazing place, and if you, if you go there, you can actually see um, an archaeological dig of a synagogue dating to the third century, okay? Underneath that dig is a second archaeological dig, and it, and it uh, dates to the first century. When was Jesus rolling around? First century. So you, you know with almost assurance that Jesus actually stood on that exact place, and he taught. If you want to know uh, how I know that, um, look at verse 59 of chapter 6. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in... Capernaum. Okay, so that's how we know. So uh, Jesus is now making a move. So he's moving from the countryside, from teaching the masses, and he's moving into an indoor setting where he's actually going to begin to teach and address the religious leaders. Now what's fascinating, and you have to understand here, is Jesus um, really never is harsh or critical or ugly to people who are in staunch outright sin. Do you know that? Almost never. Like, like, think of the Christian church for just a minute, the, the big Christian church. So steeple church and cool, you know, dark auditorium church and everything in between, okay? Who are we most critical of? Sinners, those people, right? But this is the Jesus that is always inviting those people and who he's actually moving in now to challenge are the religious leaders, which is ultimately what cost him his life. So let's read, um, I'm gonna read... 25, I'm going to go all the way to verse 43. And before we do, I want you to to see one more thing about this passage. There's a rabbinic tradition that's happening here. So there's all these people crowded inside a synagogue. There's probably thousands of people outside the synagogue still listening in this little city of Capernaum. And uh, they actually ask him four questions. So look quickly before we read it. Verse 25, first question. Rabbi, when did you get here? Now remember, he just walked across the Lake, literally walked on the water, rolled across the lake. Okay, so that's their first question. When did you get here? Question number two is in verse 28. What must we do to do the work God requires? Very important. It's really what we're going to focus in on today. What is the work of God? What are we as Christians, what are we, uh, what what is God asking us to work? How does he ask us to work? What is the work of God? That's what we're going to grapple with. Third question is in verse 30, what sign will you give that we may see you and believe you? And then the fourth question is in verse 34, sir, they said, always, well, that's kind of a statement, always give us this bread. Um, 
So anyway, there, there you go. Four questions that they're going to go for. But, but what I want you to see is Jesus is actually going to attack the heart of the religious system. And the religious system in Judaism at this day and age is actually a system where people are working for their salvation, okay? They're spending all this time cleaning up the outside. Um, and, you know, it's funny. If you look at church history, there was this shift where people uh, begin to leave churches that were like high steeple and hymn books and like everybody wore coats and ties and dresses. And they began to wear things like blue jeans and tennis shoes in church. And at first, I think it was a really great shift because it was actually mirroring a heart here that, that um, you don't have to clean up the outside in order to please God. Does that make sense? So it's, a, it's, it's not a bad shift, but what happens with any kind of shift like that is you can actually get into this thing where all of a sudden God becomes casual and nothing matters. There's, you know, there's always a tug of war and in, in, uh, a tension, I think, and it's not really a, a problem we have to sort out. It's more of a tension we, we see. So, okay, let's read. In fact, uh, let's stand together and I'll read this without comment. Maybe. <laughs> John 6, 25 to 43. Pardon our chairs. I'm going to start in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God, the Father, has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus responded to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, uh, for the bread, uh, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All whom the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of all those he has given me but raise them up at the very last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I come down from heaven? Holy Spirit, would you enliven us? Would you allow us to see your word? Would you allow us to find ourselves in your word? Father, would you convict us? Would you even change us? Would you form us? Would you make us? Lord, speak to us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
So Jesus has just moved into a synagogue. Jesus has just positioned himself to, it's, he's not initially attacking the religious leaders. He's actually inviting them to step out of their religion into relationship. Although once you're in that spot and you're feeling pretty good about yourself, guess what you don't want to do? You want to stay there, Right? And, and so he's inviting them to move from religion. Then he's going to talk about what is this work? And that's really what I want to focus on this morning is what is this work that God has called us to do? Because a lot of us as Christians end up inadvertently thinking that our work is to behave the right way. Our work is to not say the wrong thing. Our work is to always be nice, right? You hear what I'm saying? I mean, a lot of times we as Christians begin to think we got to spend our whole life not doing certain things, not saying certain things, not acting in a certain way so that God is pleased with us. And at the end of the time when he raises us all up and we stand before him, where does he let us go? Heaven. So if you really sit down and start asking any Christian off the street questions, most of us have a murky mixed theology of not just a grace-based, we surrender our life and exchange our busted life for the life of Christ in us and through us, but rather we're still performing to please a God. Okay, so that's what Jesus, I'm trying to kind of nail this for you, but that's what Jesus is actually getting at right here in this moment. And in order for you to understand it before we flip into this, the work that God has called us to do, I want to actually tell you um, a snapshot of my story. Okay, the point of this is so you can make application to whose life. Okay, listen that way. So um, quickly, uh, I was um, born to two unusual parents. Um, my mom is actually, I think she's teaching one of our kids classes in the back, but she was a Vanderbilt girl, believe it or not. She'll elbow me like crazy for saying this, but she was a Vanderbilt girl. My dad's in the military moving drugs in Puerto Rico. How did that happen? That's what's happening. Uh, both of them come to Christ in different places in the, in the whole Jesus movement that happened in the seventies. Um, he had like dropped out of school, so he had to go back to high school, go back to college. Then he went up and was doing his seminary in uh, Gordon-Conwell up in Boston. And lo and behold, I'm born in Boston. So they take a job here in Wilmington as pastors. And when I'm one years old, they move to this little city. So uh, I never knew life outside of a... Christian home and church. That's right. So I grew up um, and we all dressed up to go to the little Presbyterian church we went to. And so all of my memory is being in church. And I'm a typical, probably firstborn. I've got a younger brother and a younger sister. But, but being a typical firstborn, I have this um, ugly underbelly, which is I like to, can anybody guess? Please people. Oh man, it's insidious. Still is. So what happened as a young man is I began to learn that if I said certain things, guess what? Everybody was happy. And if I did certain things, guess what? Everybody was happy. And if I said certain things, everybody was happy. And then if I said this over here, guess what? They didn't like that. And so what did I do? I began to modify the outside of all of my behavior um, so that I could please people and they would be pleased with me. Okay, and if I could pay my parents, um, probably the highest compliment that I could pay them is what was said on the stage on Sunday morning was almost always the same thing that was going on from Monday to Saturday when no one was looking. Very 
imperfect people, but congruent people. Um, what was happening out front was what the same thing that was going on in our house, which is beautiful, probably why I'm here. If there's like one little reason why I'm here, that's probably it, that they were congruent. But what happened as I went along in my Christian journey is I began to, um, I don't think it was intentional, but I began to inadvertently um, fall into this thing, not unlike the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to in Capernaum, where if you talk like this and you don't talk like this and you don't do this, and if I don't go, you know, smoke and chew and cuss and look at pornography, then what am I? Then I'm okay and everybody's happy with me, right? And so what begins to happen, and let me make a little clarifying statement here. I'm not saying that those things aren't in the sin category, but I'm saying those things are simply a symptom of sin that exists in the human heart, okay? And I think, and what I see through the scriptures, is Jesus is almost always far less concerned with people uh, who are engaging in what we would call more egregious external visible sins, and he's genuinely more concerned, generally more concerned with people who have deep sins of the heart. It's fascinating, but, but that's almost like a cataclysmic flip of what we have in the American church. We're all concerned about what? How we look, right? So we come to church and we try to look a certain way and sound a certain way and whatever, and if, if we cuss or chew or do whatever we do behind closed doors, we don't want anybody to know, right? If I have to smoke a cigarette, I'm going to go sneak out back, okay? Come on. Y'all know somebody like that, so do I. Y'all probably been that guy, so have I, okay? Great. But, but here's the point, is what Jesus and what makes Jesus so, it almost makes him appear reckless, is because the people he goes after are the people who look good, sound good, smell good, seem good, are doing everything right, are obeying all the rules, and Jesus keeps going after them. Because where is their sin? Sins of the heart. In fact, if I like just talked honest with you here for a minute, it is easier to walk someone uh, to life and freedom in Jesus who has these type of external sins. Why? Because they already know they're a scallywag. You hear me? I mean, like someone who's in the middle of committing adultery, guess what they know? They know that they're sinning. Someone who's addicted to drugs or someone who's using something they shouldn't use or looking at something, I mean, go on. They're stealing from their boss. Guess what? They know it. The hardest thing to actually deal with, and it's like, it's, it's probably even a sickness in the church today, like it was a sickness in the church when Jesus walked the earth, is this, this deeper sin of the heart where you, you uh, reform and you polish the outside of the person in such a way that you think that you're pleasing God and pleasing people and you're earning your way to heaven. And what inadvertently happens is you become this person who goes, I don't even really need Jesus because I'm so good. You follow me? And we've all been there if we're fully honest. So in, in, in my story, what began to happen as a young teenager, actually when I went to school here, it is so weird, I went to school here. As a middle schooler, I did, seventh and eighth grade. So as I went to school here, as I kept doing things right on the outside, and I started leading this little ministry here, and then I went to Hoggard and led a ministry over there, and uh, people began to gather around me. And as people gathered around me, I began to think, well, they're gathering around me because I'm, like, good on the outside and I'm doing all the right stuff. And, and lo and behold, I become sort of slave to looking good, sounding good, and doing everything right. You hear me? And then the other uh, sort of dangerous part of it is you begin to think that you're doing, that, that all people are coming or something good is happening in your life because you're so good. Oh, it's dangerous. 
Like it is so dangerous. That's why I started with talking about Jesus who goes from 15 or 20,000 people down to 11. How did he do that? How did he have the courage to preach the gospel in such a way that he's going, if everybody leaves, I'm gonna stand. If nobody's here, I'm gonna stand and point to Yahweh God and I'm gonna do what God's called me to do. And he actually, I'll show you in the Greek next week, but he actually at the end, he is heartbroken and he's like, are you gonna leave me too? But this Jesus is so committed to dealing with the sins um, of the heart. He's also committed to leading people who have more egregious external sins to life and freedom and, and joy and hope. And, but, but he is committed to dealing with these sins of the heart. So what happens in, in my own life, and I'm not going to um, unfold it all, but what happens in my life is I hit this point where, um, like even parents would call me. I'm like 18, 16, 17, 18, and 19. Parents would call me and go, my son's you know, whatever, smoking marijuana, would you come and talk to him? Because Michael's so good, right? And I'm good. And I'm proud that I'm good. So I'd go talk to their son. Maybe it helped, maybe it didn't. People call me and go, our son and daughter, or our, they're sleeping with so-and-so, or they're doing this, or they're doing that. And I'd go, I'd go meet with them because I'm so, come on, you hear me? I went through something from age 19 to 26, this big black hole in my life. Sometimes I talk about it, sometimes I don't. But I'm convinced that what set me up for this big dark season of my life was I got to the point where I was so religious and I was doing things that looked right and sounded right and seemed right and yet more and more my heart was being hardened before God and lo and behold, little 19 year old Michael got to the point where I don't need Jesus because I have me. Can anybody relate to that? It's a lot of times easier for us to see that in somebody else, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you probably know somebody, and you can go, oh, they got that. <laughs> you might be sitting next to them, you know? <laughs> My friend Tim Livingston says, the worst thing about self-righteousness is you don't know you have it. I'm like, <gasps> Jesus, help us. So Jesus rolls in. to this little synagogue, and he begins to deal with the religious folks, and it's gonna cost him his life. And he begins to deal with the more egregious sins of the heart. He walks right past the heroine of the crowd and doing everything that the crowd would keep coming for. He walks right past the tug of war where they want him to become the warlord. They're gonna make him king. He's gonna overthrow Rome. And he's like, no, no, no. I don't care about Rome right now. I don't care about, you know, even the politics of Jerusalem or the politics of Israel. I am interested in instituting the kingdom of heaven and inviting people for all time into the life and freedom, freedom from religious performance, freedom from working for their salvation, freedom for performing for a God that they think is angry and out to get them, freedom from maybe the external addictions and habits that plague some of us, freedom to understand this Jesus and understand the joy and the hope and the peace and the life that he's got. He's going, I am not worried, and some of you make application to life and Christianity in America today. 
He's not concerned about what's happening as much in the country, and he's more concerned about what's happening in the kingdom. He's more concerned with the human heart. And when he gets a hold of human hearts, when he gets a hold of the church, which he's rattling the church right now, if you haven't noticed, but when he gets a hold of the church, when he gets a hold of the heart, he can transform countries. Okay, but he's never going to do it the backwards way, which is I'm going to roll into Jerusalem and I'm going to overthrow Rome and I'm going to become a warlord and I'm going to set up. No, 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 no. This is Jesus that comes and deals with the human heart. So in verse 29 Verse 28, the people ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? This is very rabbinic. This is normal um, uh, for, for a, a Hebrew culture. Um, they're going to ask a question of the teacher, and the teacher is going to respond. So they ask a question, what must we, what must we do to do the works God requires? Here's how he answers. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So by that statement, now think with me, you've got all these religious people around who've spent their life cleaning up what? The outside. They're performing um, to earn their way to heaven. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, your work is to what? Read it again. The work of God is this, to Believe. So you have these religious leaders who are sitting there and Jesus says, your work is to believe and they're sitting there under now the weight of condemnation of their own sin because they're like, I get up every day and I do everything right and I pay my tithe and I don't cuss and I don't blah, 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 blah. Come on, fill in the blank, right? And they're going, I have given everything to this and this guy, this 30-year-old punk kid walks in here and he's gonna flip my religion on its head and he's gonna say, all I have to do is believe? Like what's happening and what's at risk is this young 30-year-old upstart is he's going to roll in here and he's going to take our big synagogue away. He's going to take our church away because he's telling people they don't have to work anymore and then they won't tithe and then they won't. You hear it? Like Jesus is leading this radical um, shift in faith and he's going, okay, so what is your work? Your work is to believe. It's like, believe? No wonder they're angry. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul, the apostle Paul wrote it, but he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purposes. So who works? God's working. We're working out, and I think where Christians get really monkeyed up all the time is they work for. You hear me? Like, like instead of leading your life from a place of full rest before God, because it's the finished work of the cross. Well, Michael, why don't you just say the, the, the work of the cross? Because the finished work of the cross means he has done it all, he has paid it all. There's nothing else for Michael to do except believe. Oh, my goodness. That's like, somebody take a deep breath. Oh. You mean God is pleased with me just because I exchanged my broken life for the life of Jesus in me? Everybody shake your head. Yes. What? You're going to wreck the church, Michael. Maybe so. 
Work out your salvation, don't work for it. So your work, number one, is to believe. All right, let's say it again. Your work, number one, is to believe. All right, second thing we see in verse 38, I'm going to skip on down. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Whew. All right, so your work, number one, is to believe. Your work, number two, as Christians, is to surrender your will. Oh, man, this is really hard, let me tell you. I'm, I'm real I'm serious. This doesn't, there's nothing harder than this right here. Your work, number one, is to believe. Your work, number two, is to surrender your will. Not just one time but every single day. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus actually says, your kingdom come and your will be done. I think as Christians, if I see anything in my own life and in the lives of people everywhere, it's that by and large, we're still wrestling for our own will and way. I mean, we are fighting the Lord tooth and nail. He does something, he says something, he calls us somewhere. We're willing to surrender this part of our life, but not the whole thing. I mean, it is, a, it is this constant tug of war that is happening where we don't want to lay it down because we're afraid he, what he's going to do. And I want to go, hey, everybody, if you believe that he was as good as he is and as kind as he is and as gracious as he is, if you'll just lay it down, watch what he gives back to you. But guess what? You will not know until you do what? Surrender your will. You're just not going to know. So your work, number one, is to believe. Your work, number two, is to surrender your will. Now, let me, let me dig on this one just a second. What does it mean to surrender your will on a daily basis? Let me give you a, a little thing that, that I um, have learned to do in my own life. How do I surrender my will? Because I've wrestled with this a good bit before the Lord. Lord, how do I surrender my will on a daily basis? Um, and some of you know me, and some of you have heard me say things like, I get up really early every morning. And you're like, oh, Michael's got great willpower. Listen to me. I do not. I do not. I have great wisdom. So I'm going to consistently, in order to surrender my life on a daily basis, I'm going to consistently choose the wisdom of God over my own willpower. Now, what do I mean? Well... If I'm constantly looking at something on my phone that I don't need to be looking at, whether that's pornography or you might be one of those Christians that's so tied to the news. You hear me? I can't ever get up in the morning and read my Bible and spend a few minutes sitting in the presence of the Lord Jesus because I'm so fascinated with scrolling Instagram. or scroll. What's wisdom say? Get a what? Come on. Get a flip phone. Dead serious. Like, well, that is so simple. Michael, I can't give up looking at the news or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or pick your poison. I don't know. I can't give it up. I, I try to read my one-year Bible, and then I get going, and I start scrolling, you know, Instagram. Come on. Everybody in here knows that because I see you make lots of comments on Facebook, which means I was looking at. Here's what I'm saying, though. You surrender your life to Jesus, and if you're in here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, that's where it all begins. You surrender your broken life to him. He gives you his glorious life that now takes up residence inside of you. You give him your brokenness. You exchange your brokenness for his righteousness. It's this big exchange. But then you make the exchange daily. 
And I'm convinced that one of the ways we make that exchange is we choose the path of wisdom over willpower because willpower is gonna leave you high and dry. In other words, I like donuts. I like donuts, okay? My grandpa owned a bakery and everybody in my family likes donuts. I have to go, Abby, I like donuts. My willpower is not strong enough to resist those donuts. So what do I say? Please don't buy donuts. You hear me? No, what am I choosing? I'm making this like silly and funny, but like go with it because there's something powerful here. How do you surrender your will daily? So I'm talking to us as believers who've surrendered our life to him. Now we're going, okay, how do I surrender my will daily? Well, I don't want to spend my life eating donuts because Ezra's two, I was actually just out, I got to go rock climbing this past uh, weekend. It was amazing. Um, I, I had a great time, and I reminded myself that when Ezra's 12, so in 10 years, I want to be able to climb with him. And guess what I can't do every day if I want to do that? Eat donuts. Now, I, I'm being silly, but like, hear me here, because there's something, and then we could go around the entire room. We could talk to everybody. Everybody's got at least one or two things that you are struggling with, and if you would begin to surrender your will in that area by choosing wisdom over willpower, you'd see some victory. You hear me? We could go around the room and talk to everybody. We got hang-ups. We're the most imperfect people. We are in the journey. I'm even sharing with you my own past journey of pride and religious arrogance and self-righteousness so you can go, wow, that guy up there doesn't have it together. Why? So there's hope for you. Come on. This is, this is the king that wants to take your broken life and exchange it for his life. And he actually wants to transform you in such a way and empower you to live, fill you with hope and joy and peace. Like you can have peace with God, not just today, but every day. Whew. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching better than you're responding. All right. All right. So number one. What is your work? To believe. Number two, what's your work? To surrender your will. <clears throat> two other thoughts on that before I roll past. You might have a greed problem. The same thing is true. You might have a pride problem. The same thing is true. Like choose wisdom over willpower and, and look at the area that the Holy Spirit is putting his hand or finger on in your life. And then if you've got a greed problem, start buying lunch for the person you're with every time you go out. You hear me? If you've got a pride problem, begin to stand up on a stage in front of people and tell them your deepest, darkest secrets and your big sin. You hear me? Like I'm telling you, like see it and then, and then take it head on because this is the God that if you will surrender it, ask him to take you through the journey, he will give you the tools and empower you to overcome. Your work, number one, is to believe. This is the, Christianity makes a lousy religion because of this. Religion is working your way to God. Uh, every religion on the face of the earth, I've studied them, is all working your way to God. Christianity is about believing and resting in the finished work of the cross, because he's done it. Your work, to believe. Your work, number two, to surrender your will. Your work, number three, is to receive faith. Okay, let's look at that, verse 40. Verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up. I, Jesus, he's saying, I am the Son. I am God. I am Yahweh. So your work, number three, is to receive faith. Okay, let's wrestle with that just quickly. If you doubt, does that mean you don't have faith? 
Isn't that good news? No. Some of you need to hear that today. What if you doubt? I have moments where I doubt. I go, I'm, I've invested my whole life in this. What if? You're like, our pastor believes that? Our pastor has moments? Yes. It is, I think if you doubt, it actually makes you human. The question is, when you doubt, are you going to sit with somebody you trust? Are you going to go see Cynthia Ross? Where's Cynthia Ross? At the small group table right out the back door and go, I need to get in a small group and wrestle with some of these scriptures because I'm having some doubts. And I would say, instead of running from your doubt, get into it and talk about it. Like begin to share and go, I'm not sure and wrestle with the scripture because I'm convinced that if you will engage, number one, Jesus, but number two, each other in authentic, deep and genuine relationships that you can actually work through the doubt. Doubt doesn't mean you haven't received faith. I actually think it means you have. I've sat in seminary, or not seminary, I sat at UNCW under different religious professors. They had no doubt that they were right. You hear me? They weren't double-minded. They were just like, Jesus isn't God. Y'all are wrong. They didn't have any doubt. The people who struggle with doubt are actually the ones who are in the Jesus journey. Somebody take a deep breath. (gasps) Okay. Now go see Cynthia and join a small group and work it out. (laughs) All right, your work, number one, is to believe. Your work, number two, is to surrender your will. Your work, number three, is to receive faith. Faith is a byproduct of receiving the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8, if you want to look it up. By faith we overcome doubt. I think the other thing that happens here is as you receive faith, we're all, and this is a whole thing unto itself, but there's a whole message of um, you have to receive the forgiveness of God. Some of you are sitting around beating yourself up for your own failure. You know that? I've I've spent years doing that, just being honest. I have this seven-year hole in my life. You'll hear me talk about it once in a while. I just mentioned it. But I've spent years beating myself up for that. But I have to receive by faith that Jesus has taken Michael's brokenness and exchanged it for his person and presence. I tell you, sometimes I have these morning declarations. And one of them is I just remind myself that I've been crucified with Christ. Michael doesn't live anymore. Jesus lives in me and it's really freeing. Okay, your work, number one, is to believe. Your work, number two, is to surrender your will. Your work, number three, is to receive faith. And then your work, number four, this one's like a little, little bit challenging, but is to um, eat and distribute the bread of heaven. Now, who's the bread of heaven? Okay, let's look at verse 41. At this, the Jews there, so these are the religious leaders, began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Let's, let's clean that up. Your work is to abide in Jesus. Your work is to practice his presence. What do I mean by that? That means in, um, in your everyday life, you're going along and something happens at home and all of a sudden you're impatient with your kids or your spouse or your coworker and you want to yell and cuss and throw and whatever. And what do you do? What's <laughs> Paul says go to CR. That's good. <laughs> when CR is not happening in that moment, what do you do? You step back. That's what I do. Sometimes I have to say, oop, I need to step outside and like water the plants or something. Because I'm going to go practice the present. I'm going to go, Jesus, here it is. I'm exchanging my brokenness. Would you forgive me? I still get impatient. I still get frustrated. I still get angry. I still get disappointed. I still get hurt. And you're going to, too. 
but your work is to, um, it's, it's like to appropriate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Your work is to eat the body and blood of Jesus, which we're about to do, and then to practice his presence everywhere you go. Okay, let's tie this up. So your work, number one, is to believe. Your work, number two, is to surrender your will. Your work, number three, is to receive faith. Your work, number four, is to eat the bread of heaven, Jesus, and then distribute it. Now, go back to my story for just a second. Until I was, had gotten to the point where I could admit that I had a fascination and had fallen prey to the seduction of cleaning up the outside and looking good on the outside. I couldn't surrender my will because I was Lord of my own life. You hear me? And you, you come to this point where you go, Lord Jesus, I'm surrendering my rightness, my goodness, my, you fill in the blank. I'm surrendering my self-righteousness for the righteousness and the finished work of the cross. A couple of thoughts before we go to communion. You can operate your Christian life out of the finished work of the cross, or you can spend your life trying to finish the work of the cross. You hear me? But you can't do both. Shake your head. You can either work for your salvation or you can work out your salvation. You cannot do both. You can either hide behind a smug religious mask and exterior and be really critical and ugly of people who practice external sins. Come on, we've all done it. You think you haven't? You're probably not being honest with you or me. Or you can begin to be honest with Jesus, with yourself, and engage in deep and authentic human relationships. But you can't live both ways. You can spend your life working to please God, or you can begin to appropriate and receive that because of Jesus, he's already pleased with you. You can live your life out of this fear of the disappointment of God. Or you can live your life out of the pleasure of God. I don't know about you, but that last song that I think Missy and Daniel led, at the beginning of the song, I talked about when you first open your eyes in the morning. And at the end of the song, I talked about when you last close them at night. And the whole idea was to actually practice his presence. And, And my prayer, not just for me, but for us as a church, for every single one of us, is that the moment we flicker our eyes open in the morning, it's not the multitude of anxious thoughts that crowd into our lives. It's not the worry or the anxiety or the fear or the doubt, but that we would actually register the pleasure of God. And I think if we lived like that, we would never be the same. You guys can start playing whenever you're ready. I'm going to read Luke 22 as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want you to hear it right from the scripture. If you want to follow along, it's verse 14 to 20, but you might just want to let the word wash over you as we celebrate communion. 
When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Where is he going to suffer? The cross. For I tell you, I will not eat it, bread and wine, again, until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again until the fruit of the vine, of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. to Jesus and say, Jesus, use me. As we're here worshiping, I'm going to ask something courageous because eyes are open, but is there anyone in here who would go, man, I want to surrender my life to Jesus today for the first time? Is there anybody out there who would go, man, I want to walk with this God? Anybody? If you're online and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, type it into the chat. One of us will circle back with you. I'm going to be standing up here afterwards. If you need special prayer, if you'd love to give your life to Jesus, I'd love to pray with you. These are great people all the way across, trusted people. So come on up if you need special prayer. And as you go today, go under the revelation that this is the God who's already worked so that we have to believe and receive what he's already done. Lord Jesus, as you send us out of here, send us out as a body of believers who believes more fully in you and walks it out in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go with Jesus.